good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. As I look around the room, I, I think that probably everybody here, almost everybody here is on the church email list. And so you received a note um, a day or two ago stating that Todd's brother Shannon died suddenly on Thursday. Otherwise, Todd would be here this morning and he would be standing up here in front of us right now, which he wanted to do so much, having been gone for a while and thankful to Brian and Doug for fill, filling in the last three Sundays so Todd could be away. And uh, this was, of course, not a cho choice of his today. Um, and I know this has been a shock to us all. I per personally can't imagine what they're going through, uh, his, his whole, fam whole family, Todd and his family, his brother's family, and Todd's parents, Marvin and Tommy. Um, but I know that um, God can and will hold them up and through this very di di difficult time. Let let's just continue to pray for them, and especially for Todd as he's carrying the weight of this, this whole thing. Um, in fact, let's just take, take a minute and go before the Father on their behalf. Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are our deliverer, that you're our redeemer. And Father, that it's in you that we find our strength and Father, we ask especially right now that you would uh, provide Todd uh, with the strength that he needs to lead the family through this difficult time. And Father, that you would shower the whole family with your peace as they have to make decisions and move from this day forward. Father, we know that we can put our trust in you and we know that the fact that you have called us to be your children lets us know of your great love, and we thank you for that. Father, also we thank you for your word that we can open up this morning and spend a few minutes looking at what we know is one of your favorite stories, a story of faith and a story of healing, and we thank you for this time we can spend together. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well. Uh, as you know, we're going through our summer series of life-changing encounters with Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at a story of a Roman centurion and his servant. Um, and we're going to see how um, God de de describes faith in the heart of a man and uh, what takes place in, in his life. Um, this is an, an unusual sto story in at least a couple of di different ways, and we'll talk about those as we get there. But as we, we, we will be in Luke chapter se 7 this morning, uh, the first 10 verses, and we'll also be in Matthew chapter 8, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, um, let's take a look at the uh, centurion. Um, just by his name, uh, his title means that he commanded... A uh, uh, hundred soldiers. They were un under his his command. Um, 
We would assume that this man was a long ways from home, that perhaps he was from it Italy or some other country in Europe, had been trained as a soldier in the Ro Ro Roman army. Uh, he was there to help keep peace in a land that had been invaded by his pre predecessors about 90 years be before that, that, that time. So this wasn't his idea. He wasn't even born when, whenever Rome took over that part of the world. Uh, we find out from this story that he had a ser servant boy uh, who worked for him. Also, we find out that he was very fond of this young, young man. And we find out that the young man was very ill and near death. We also see from re reading the story that this centurion had heard of Jesus and Jesus um, began his ministry in this part of the world in Galilee where this centurion was, where, where, where he was stationed. And we know from re re reading this story that he had heard of Jesus teaching and he had heard of him as a healer. And we, we figure out that he had some understanding of the authority that Jesus had displayed through his te teaching um, and through his healing. We also find out in the story that this centurion had a love for the Jewish nation. And uh, that probably was a little bit uh, unusual. Uh, because he was probably a long way from home, probably didn't want to be there, was giving orders to keep peace in this part of the world, and but yet it said that we will find out that he had a love for the Jewish na nation, as unusual as that was. And also the last unusual thing is that we find out from this passage we're going to be in this morning that this man was a, a, a humble man. So that's kind of the context, or that's a little bit of back, background about him. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to set the context for this story. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 25. Now Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. There were people coming from all over the place long distances. Now if we look at the first two verses of chapter 5, when Jesus saw these crowds, he went up on the mountain, up on a hill outside of Capernaum. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, if you'll flip over to the end of chapter 7, we come to the end of this te teaching time. The last verse of our chapter 7 says this. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Please hold on to that phrase. We're going to need that phrase later on. Teaching as one having authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus had just finished, um, just had just completed his first teaching discourse uh, of his ministry. And, and we gave it a name. Somebody before me gave it a name, Sermon on the Mount. So that, that, that's what you know it as. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. By, by the way, any of you lay, ladies who uh, are in the once a month Bible study here at the church have recently been studying Jesus' fifth teaching di discourse, uh, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. So we find our, our story, as I said, in, in, in two places, in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. And we'll be looking at bo both of those to get some of the detail of, of the story. Now, the main di difference in these two passages is that Matthew wrote his as if the centurion is speaking directly to Jesus. In, in other words, there, it seems that they are there to get together at the same place. Luke, however, explains and, and lets us know that, that he did speak to G Jesus, but it was through two groups of messengers. He never actually was in front of Jesus himself. And there's a reason for that, and we'll, we'll get to that. Um, they spoke the words of the centurion to, 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 to Jesus. So this makes it sort of an unusual encounter because in these two passages, the centurion never actually did speak to Jesus himself, but he did speak to Jesus through these two groups of people who spoke on his, his behalf. So Luke will be our main passage, but we'll also flip back to the Matthew passage also. So if you're on a device, you can split it up, or if you have your Bible, flip back and forth or whatever with us. So let's start with Luke chapter 7, verse 1. So when Jesus had completed his discourse in the hearing of the people, he came down from the hill, down from the mountain, and went into Capernaum. And the centurion's slave, and a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. Now, if you flip back to Matthew 8, verse 6, you find out some de de detail that Matthew gives. It says that he was lying paralyzed in his home. It says fearfully tor tormented. So I'm not exactly sure what all that, that means, but we get these four de descriptive words. He was tormented. He was paralyzed. Then Luke says he was sick and about to die. Verse 3. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. I would suggest that from the viewpoint of these Jewish elders that he was worthy to be listened to because he had befriended the Jews and had built them a synagogue. I think that Jesus sees him worthy because even though the centurion hadn't seen him, this man exhibited a degree of faith that Jesus could feel 
could heal his servant. Because again, we'll find out in a minute why he didn't come to see Jesus on his own, but he didn't come. He sent others, but it would have taken faith in order for him to think that Jesus could heal his servant. So if we flip back to Matthew 8, verse 7 says that when they asked him if he would come and heal the man's servant, Jesus says in verse 7, I will come and heal him. So I would, would expect that whenever Jesus said, I will come and heal him, that somebody then left and ran to the centurion's home to let him know Jesus said he's going to come and heal your your servant. I say that because in chapter 7, verse 6, it says, Now Jesus started on his way with them, and he, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him. So once again, the centurion didn't come himself, but he sent some friends who were to, to, to catch Jesus before he gets to the house. That's why I think somebody ran on. When Jesus said, okay, I'll come and I'll heal him, I think somebody took off and ran to his house and said, guess what? He's going to come and he's going to heal your servant. So verse 6 again, Jesus started on his way with them. And so these are some of the disciples and these are the Jewish elders. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to see him down the street, down the blocks, however far away he was, saying to him, and this is what the centurion is wanting Jesus to know. The centurion says to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. So this man had heard enough about Jesus to know that Jesus was healing people from all these different regions of that part of the world. And he believed that Jesus could heal his servant based on what he had heard about about Jesus. But look at his humility. There was something about him. When he said, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, it, it could be that he was aware of a lot of the Jewish laws. And it could be that he knew that if Jesus came in his house, that Jesus would then be defiled because he had come into a Gentile's house. And he would not be able to go to the synagogue and teach unless he went through the cleansing process. So that it's, it's possible. But what we do get here is that this man, for some reason or other, he understood his condition. He, he understood when he says that I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So why would he have felt himself unworthy? Maybe he had heard through somebody some of the te- te- teachings of Jesus. Maybe he had seen or heard the way that ha- Jesus handled the script- scriptures. And when Jesus spoke with the script, spoke those things, remember in chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, 6, 6, and 7, Jesus uses a lot of the script, scriptures in there. And remember it said the very last verse in chapter 7, he spoke as somebody having uh, authority. Well, those people who knew what the script, scriptures said that were hearing him speak heard him using the scriptures in a different way 
than their religious leaders had used them. And so for some reason or other, somehow that this translated, I believe, to this, this man. Also, another interesting thing, he said, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. And he sends these people out to stop Jesus from coming to his house. Well, that takes me back to verse 3, and I wonder if something ha happened here. Verse 3 and verse 4. Let's read that again. When he heard about Jesus, the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him, I believe that he sent the Jewish elders to ask him to heal his servant. Now, the, the, the verse here says, when this is what Luke records, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come. But that's in contradiction to what he says to Jesus in verse 6 when he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. You know what I think ha happened here? I think those Jewish el elders, I think he said, I've heard about Jesus. Please go find him. And they were willing to do it because he had befriended them and been nice to them and done nice things for them. Would you please go find him and ask him if he will heal my servant also like he's been healing others? Well, I think those Jewish elders said, yes, we'll do it. They go and find Jesus. And when they find him, they say, would you come to his house and heal his ser servant? Because maybe they had seen Jesus heal some people and they were always right there. They were always right, 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 right there. When Jesus healed them, they were coming to him and he was he healing them. So I think because of what the... Centurion said right there in that verse, in the second half of verse 6, I think he sent those men to ask him if he, if he would heal my servant. They go there and just assume the nor normal thing, and that is, Jesus, would you come to his house and heal his, ser his servant? So then when somebody comes running, and they said, he's coming, because that's what Jesus, Jesus just repeated what they asked him. I will come and heal him in Matthew chapter 8. So he, somebody comes running. They tell him he's coming. He sends friends out and says, wait a minute, stop, Lord. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to leave my house and come to you, not because you should come to me, but because I'm unworthy. What did he know about his own condition? But Lord, you could just say the word and my servant will be healed. Let's continue on. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another one, come, and he comes. To my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard that he had said this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. So this man knew who he was. He had somebody who was over him, under whose authority he, he, he operated. There was a general. There was a somebody who was over him. Even though he was over a hundred soldiers, there was somebody who was, oh, oh, was over him. And he understood the concept of being under the authority of, of somebody. 
And he also knew that all he had to do was tell the soldiers under him, go to this and they went, come to this and they came to that, to tell his slaves, you do this and they, they would, do, would do that. There's another thing he, he understood and that was that the general, whoever was giving him orders, did not have to be in the room to give him the orders. The gen general, wherever he was, could send an orderly to tell the centurion, I want you to take 15 troops and go up there and guard this road. The centurion would say, wait a minute, where's the general? He, he, he understood he was under authority and however the commands came, he obeyed, obeyed the commands. Same way with the pe people un, un, under him. He could tell the orderly, go tell those 10 soldiers to go do this and the orderly would go tell them and they would go do it as if it came from him. He did not have to see them face to face. And so he understood that con, con, concept. And because he understood it, See what he was recognizing about Jesus? Jesus the te te teacher, Jesus the, he the healer, didn't have to come to his house to heal his servant. That's why he had sent those men, go find him. I've heard about him. Just ask him if he'll heal my servant. That's all he was asking. That's all he needed. Well, then when he finds out G Jesus is coming, look, look at his, at his humility. Hum humility. Jesus, you're somebody who obviously knows the scriptures. Some say you're from God. Some say maybe you are the one that Israel has been looking for. I've seen what you've done. I'm so unworthy for you to come to me. So, so unworthy. So he tells Jesus, I understand this thing of uh, uh, of authority, and I'm placing myself under your authority to believe you, to have faith in you, to heal my ser servant. Now, is that all that took place in that man's life the day that he healed his servant? I, I suspect not. Okay, G Jesus goes on then. If we could flip flip over to Matthew chap chapter eight, let's flip flip back over there. Luke does not record this, but Matthew does. Matthew records that Jesus had some things to say to the crowd that was following him on the way to the centurion's house. So he stopped by these friends. These friends give him the message. And Jesus' response to the message from the centurion was, he marveled at him. He turned and said to the crowd, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. So now we have an example of what faith is. If, if we need to know what faith is, Jesus just says, this is what I call faith. When someone has that attitude toward me, what all have they said about me? What all have they believed about me when they've said what this man has said? If you can figure that out, now you know what faith looks like. Because he then goes on to say, I want you to understand this is what faith lo looks like and you're going to need to know this. And your, ch your ch children are going to need to know this. And their children are going to need to know this because the day is coming when something is going to ha happen. And then he, he gives them a little glimpse. I'm going to read these ver verses, then we're going to flip over to another passage and then come back. Matthew 8, 11 through 13, I say to you that many will come from east and west 
and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Because of what? Because of their faith. See, what, what you've just seen di displayed is going to result in many coming from east and west and reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, the fu future. They didn't know how far future. We don't know how, how far future. But look at verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, now let, let's, let's expand this just for a minute. I know we don't have, a, we don't have that much time, but let, let's expand this for a minute. If you'll flip over to Luke chapter 13. Jesus speaks to this issue again six chapters later. And we find out that he's been passing through towns and, vi and vi villages on his way to Jerusalem. Carrie, I think whenever we were do doing this, this was one of your pa passages, I think. Yeah. You want to come up and, ta ta and, and tag in? And go ahead and finish. Okay. Verse 20 23 in Luke 13. And someone said to him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he said to them, now I'm going to add a few little thing, thing, things in because this is a lesson all by itself that Carrie taught one time and I heard it and we don't have time unless y'all want to stay a while. But so I'm just going to add, add, add a, little, a little bit in to, 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 to complete the context. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? Maybe yours says, Lord, there are just a few who are being saved. And he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door to the kingdom into heaven. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter by their own works, but will not be able to. That this is the context of what Jesus was teaching there. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then the Lord will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets in Galilee and Judea and the east side of the river and all those places where you were, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Who's he speaking to there? If we go back over to Matthew chapter 8, I would suggest that he's speaking to the sons of the kingdom who will be cast out into outer, dark, outer darkness. Let's see what he says. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south. People are coming from all over the place and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God, but not you. Because I'll tell you, I don't even know where you're from. That's a little scary when you say. All right, so if we go back to Matthew 8 then and read this again. So Jesus takes this opportunity. He says, truly I say to you, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. If you want to know what faith is, looks like, this is what faith look, looks like. And for the fu future, if you have faith in God as this man does, if you have faith in me as this man has, 
then there will be many who come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. However, if you do not have that faith, if I am not your Messiah, if you have not believed my, me my, my message, if your sins have not been forgiven because of what I've done on the cross, then all I can say to the sons of the kingdom is you'll be cast out. So Jesus took the aha opportunity when he was saw this great faith to explain to them, this is the way that you enter my kingdom is with this kind of faith. If you don't, you won't. Okay, so let's fin finish this up. Then in Matthew 8, 13, Jesus says to the friends of the centurion, go tell the centurion that it will be done for him as you have believed. So what was, why did Jesus heal his, ser his servant? Because of the belief, because of the faith of the centurion, because you have, have believed. And the scripture says he was healed at that moment. The Luke passage says when the friends got back to the house, they found the young man well. He was healed by the power of God through Jesus because of his master's faith in Jesus as his savior and healer. As Jesus said to, Tom, to, to Thomas, would say to Thomas later on, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Which draws me to, as we finish that famous verse that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus when he said, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, we're blessed to get to hear of a story of someone who has received that, that life. And Lisa Huddleston is going to come share with us. So everybody sit back and relax and, and enjoy her story. I, I've gotten to hear it, and I'm looking forward to it again, Lisa. Hi guys. <laughs> um, for those of you that have already heard my story, it's easier to tell it the second time because my story's pretty messy. So if you're here today and your story is messy, then just take a deep breath. If yours is wound up pretty nicely, I might, it might be a little shocking, but it's okay. When Todd asked me to share about a life that had been encountered by Jesus, um, Jesus is everything. My life would not have been the same without him. So um, I'm here to tell you that God has granted me, I forgot to tell one thing to the first group, uh, the privilege of growing older. I'm now available for senior discounts and all those cool things. And one thing that I look back at that I need to tell you before I tell you my family's story is that I found out in my 50s through a cousin that my grandma, when you hear the messy part of our story, that my grandma, from her bed, recovering from a stroke, was praying for my family during that time. So I want you to see the many elements of God at work. Think about a sweet grandma knowing that her son was a mess and praying for him across the miles. And this is what God did, okay? Um, so many times in scripture, when we read about life-changing encounters with Jesus, we see entire households coming to a place of belief after one person has encountered Jesus and the gospel message. Since that's what happened to me, I have to start there. 
I was the second of four kids born to Clayton and Sylvia Peterson, and my dad was an Iowa farm boy who taught me the value of hard work, gave me a love for the outdoors and growing things, and my mom was a pretty red-headed city girl that was known for her kindness, compassion, and her love of words and language. After dad left the farm, he enlisted in the Marines, and soon after, some friends introduced him to mom. Soon they were married. After he had served his time in the military, he continued his training in electronics and what was then new called radar technology. And soon he was tracking missiles, and due to the nature of his work, we started living in, des in different desert locations. And of all places, we started in Utah. Now you need to understand that my family, my parents, were good people. Meaning by that, Dad provided for us, he coached Little League, he took us on outdoor adventures, Mom worked at the base, was a brownie leader, and consistently cared for us. However, they were good, but they were lost. So I call it good and lost. Um, and like all lost people, I've lived long enough to know that anyone without Christ will come to the end of themselves, will come to their end of their own resources, and life will get messy and broken. Because see, we weren't made to navigate life without Christ. My parents got there, both of them in their brokenness, contributing to what became a mess at our house, and it became messy enough that Mom left. Dad needed to go find her, and it just so happened that the pastor um, in that town and his family were with an organization called Village Missions, whose purpose was to bring the gospel to small communities that didn't have a Protestant church. And they just so happened to live three doors down, and they had kids that went to school with us. So dad went and got the pastor so he could go find mom and bring her home. When they got home, the pastor walked through that mess with them, I still remember it, and told them that the only thing would save their marriage and their family was to recognize their own sin, understand the need of a great God, and trust in the work of Christ to redeem them so they would place their trust in him and rebuild their lives and their family by his provision. My mom received Christ right then and there and immediately started being discipled by some materials that that organization provided. That woman who left us, my mom, became the most godly woman I've ever known. To this very day, I say, having her for a mom was my privilege. She often shared this story. She wasn't embarrassed. She told people who would listen because she knew about messy lives and she wanted other people to come to know her Savior and see the difference he makes. Her favorite phrase is ingrained in my mind and I'm sure in the lives of my children. Her favorite phrase was, except for the grace of God, there go I. It was a great way to grow up. She was always pointing people to Jesus. And I was among the first. She led me to Jesus soon when I was eight years old. Dad followed somewhere in the next year as he observed her changed life. My dad had grown up in a denomination that gave him a great background about God, and he was thankful for that. But he now understood that a, that a denominational experience did not save him. So he owned his own sin and his need for a savior, and he liked to say he was born again. Our entire family came to faith there in Utah, and I'm extremely thankful for that good foundation for our faith and started the process there of God transforming us by the renewing of our minds. When I was 12 years old, we moved to Alamogordo, um, New Mexico. My dad went to work at White Sands Missile Range, and this move was hard on me because I was a shy girl, and my new junior high was as big as the whole town I just moved from. I did in time adjust and adapt and learn to love living there. 
God provided us with a church and a good youth group and the opportunity to develop friendships. During that time, one of my favorite things was I got to be some part of something called Child Evangelism Fellowship, which provided training for us to hold good news clubs and share the gospel with children. But there was something else that happened during that season that impacted me very deeply, and I can't leave it out or my story wouldn't be honest. I experienced both sexual and verbal abuse during that time, and it really impacted how I saw myself. I had no idea at that time what to do with that abuse. So how I dealt with it was I poured myself into jumping through hoops, grabbing opportunities for achievement of various kinds. I was trying to prove to myself and to others that I had value and worth. From this, I would develop trust issues and defensive behaviors that God would have to help me work through later because God is good like that. <laughs> I learned he's the God who stays and he's the God who heals and he's the God who restores. When I was almost 15 years old, I met this incredible guy named Hud. A friend brought him to church because our church league needed some height with skills, and Hud fit that bill. But actually, behind the scenes, God was arranging that because Hud grew up in a home with no background, no religious training, and he had been looking for God, and he came to know Christ there. And God knew that I would need that man for my husband. Hud went off to college. We were a lot different in age, and so I had a lot of high school left. So during that time, we dated on and off for about five years. And then at the very mature age of 19 and 22, we were married. That's not very mature, guys. Okay. Shortly after that, we moved to La Mesa. It was there that our beautiful children were born, which gave me the opportunity to have the most delightful, demanding, and rewarding job I've ever had, being their mom. What a grace they were and still are to me. It was during that time in my life that I was really impacted by older women investing in younger women. Sometimes that mentoring would happen as they shared life with me, and other times it was by attending Bible studies that that church so generously provided childcare for so I could attend. To this very day, I still remember with great fondness the women who served and helped me at that time. But I have to be honest, that was out of college, starting a family. It was there, it was a lonely place for me. In the daily trenches of doing life far away from my family in a new community, without any deep friendships yet built, God continued to grow me. A friend gave me a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I grew deeper in my faith as I learned about the beautiful character of the God that I already loved but really didn't know very well. And with my trust issues, I needed to know him. When I finished reading this book, I remember closing it and saying, okay, I finally found the one my soul can fully trust. I'm all in. I'm not sure about the rest of you, but I can trust him. Well, you know what God does. When God teaches you something, he usually does it because he knows you're going to need it. During the next little bit of time, some things came together that brought up the abuse that I mentioned earlier that I didn't have a clue how to deal with. And I, and I talked to my husband, and he said he would fully support me as I dealt with it. And so I learned to cry out to God during that time, to come boldly to the throne of grace. And he gave me mercy and help in my time of need. God led and guided me so faithfully during that time that over the process of the next decade, a lot of healing, forgiveness, restoration happened. That's a God thing. God be praised. Next, I was about to face the biggest trust issue of my life. You remember that wonderful man I married? Yep. Well, he and my mom were the only two humans that I trusted with my heart. 
while we're still in the Mesa before we moved here, we were in the midst of trying to learn how to do grown-up life. And I tell you, it's hard figuring out how to make a living, pay bills, raise kids. And HUD at that time had a job in the oil field. And his hours were long and hard, and he was rarely off on weekends to attend church and engage in family life. It was a tough season for him. It was a tough season for me. We started drifting apart and neglecting each other, not on purpose, but it happened all the same. I saw our marriage deteriorating and got busy uh, reading books, listening to radio programs on how to build, rebuild your marriage. And I tried so hard, and knowing me, I was probably very obnoxious about it and becoming frustrated, though, and hopeless because there was no response or improvement for about two years. I was struggling. He was struggling. And we were... And he was being, and he would say, I was neglectful and disengaged. And then he spoke some hurtful words to me, and it was just the thing that broke me. It's the only way I know how to describe it. It was like having a broken leg, except it was my heart and I couldn't fix it. Do you remember those trust issues I told you I had? <laughs> well, what happens when I have trust issues? I put on my, I'll do it myself, I don't need you. And all of that came raging back up. So I started working on an exit plan. Once I had that figured out, I told HUD because I'm thoughtful and told him he could start making any plans he needed. HUD knew I was dead serious that I was done. The next day he asked me if I would hold up and pray for one week before enacting my exit plan. We'd invested eight years in a marriage, so I figured I could give him a week because I'm generous like that. HUD was a sneaky man, and he knew in the desperate place that we were at that the only one who would change my mind was God. So I did. I kept my word, and I prayed for several days, and then I'll never forget the question God asked me. He said, Lisa, what do you fear most, me or a loveless marriage? I told God I'd get back to him on that. Somehow I knew that the question God was asking me would require a response of obedience, and I would have to wrestle with it. So after a couple days, I came to the conclusion that God was asking me to stay and to trust him. I only knew one thing for sure at that time. I knew I couldn't do life without God. So I folded my arms like an obstinate toddler, and I told God I would stay, but I wasn't helping. You see, in my hurt state, I also told him, good luck with that. You'll have to raise this marriage from the dead. Can you imagine him? He shook his head and said, does she forget? I have a good reputation for that. Ah, God did a big work in Hud's heart. And for a year, he loved me well with little to no response. You see, broken people need time to mend. Then God did the miraculous and blew his holy breath on those dead embers of our marriage and rekindled a flame that has been burning warmly since that time. During that season, I learned how important it is to obey God at all times, no matter how you feel. By the grace of God, that man is now my favorite person on the planet, and I would have missed out on the love—I would have missed out on life with the one I love most if I had not obeyed. Grace upon grace. Then, in 1989, we came here. We moved to Lubbock with three kids in tow. At the time, they were eight, five, and three, uh, to start a business. Wow, so all I can tell you, there's no way I have the time to tell you the multitude of ways and times God showed up and provided our need. God is faithful. One of my favorite provisions during this time was this church home. 
You see, we were looking for a church home that would teach God's word accurately and consistently. And thank you, Mark, for being a part of that here for us to shape our lives and the lives of our children. One thing I've noticed is that the word of God, combined with the spirit of God, can say things to your soul that no human being can get away with. He said a lot of things to me over the years. I cannot tell you how the word of God has transformed me. It has revealed truth. It has convicted. It has encouraged. It has instructed. It has healed. It has guided and a million other beneficial things to strengthen me in Christ. Here at this church, I've had the opportunity to sit under godly pastors and teachers that have been like family to me and attend studies to build a firm foundation for life. I'm so very grateful. Here, I've had the chance to learn how to serve, and it's been a joy. Here at this church, I got to grow up as a grown-up. I hadn't grown up as a grown-up yet which is why we need God's admonition to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, we've never been grown-ups before. We're going to need to learn to give grace to each other while we learn to do so. It was here at this church that I formed the deepest, most meaningful relationships to do life with, and they've been such a gift. You see, we need his word, we need his spirit, we need his people to do life well. At one point during that journey, we had a daughter who was walking in great rebellion before God and with us. It was heartbreaking, and it was exhausting. And during that season, so many of you prayed with us, for us, and walked with us, counseled us with us, cried with us, and prayed with us while we waited on God to work in her heart. At one point, when she was a young adult, we couldn't find her anywhere, physically, I cried out to God and I told him, I need to know where she was at, because you remember how I work. I'm going to take care of things. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get after it. So I was telling God, I need to know. His reply was, no, you don't. Trust me, because I'm the only one who does know, and I'm the only one who can do anything about it. So I changed my prayer from trying to tell God how to do it to God, change your heart and help my next interaction with her to draw her closer in. We are thankful today that I can stand before you and tell that God has restored her to him. He has restored her to us. And it's really beautiful now to watch as she ministers through the experiences that God brought her through. Since that time, God has grown our family by adding two more sons and a beautiful daughter-in-law and seven beautiful grandchildren. Now we're praying for them the same thing we prayed for our own. May they know and may they walk with the Lord. He's the only sure foundation for life now and the life to come. In wrapping up a while back, Todd asked us if we would write and share our own soul's Magnificat after he shared the story, um, Mary's Magnificat. And this is what I wrote, and this is how I feel about the great God that we serve. I was found by you in the middle of everyday living with all of its joys and struggles and beauty and messes. You revealed yourself to me and became the steadfast anchor for my soul. Knowing you became a lifelong quest. It's a journey. It's one I'm still on as bit by bit you reveal yourself to me by your spirit, from your word, through your people. Trusting and obeying you became a result of knowing you, the one my soul could fully trust in all seasons of life, the joyous and the painful. Loving you was my response to being loved so completely by you. It's a love like no other, so pure in its intent for one unworthy.
and serving you was my only possible response. After being found by you, after coming to know you, after learning to trust and obey you, after being loved by you, he is my soul's delight and he is my greatest joy. Thank you, Lisa. Let's stand together and thank the Lord for the morning. Father, we are indeed blessed to have been here this morning. Father, we thank you that we are able to sing to you and sing about you, to open up our hearts that way to you. And Father, we thank you for opening up your word your heart to us. And Father, we thank you for the testimonies of those whose lives you have changed and worked in that are testimony to us and encouragement to us. And we thank you for the Huddlestons this morning. And Father, I just ask that you would work on behalf of all the people here this morning as they go into the week with the work situations they'll have and the disappointments and the times of joy. We pray, Father, that you would work in all of our hearts this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.